But I have some work to do. We have some work to do. So we need to get started. Um, thank you for being here this morning. Um, I hope that this is a, a useful, helpful, and even encouraging time. Um, today is going to be blunt, and I pray helpful. I was asked uh, to address parenting in the context of an LGBTQ, gender-confused, woke, immoral culture that increasingly hates children. How's that? You guys down for that? And sadly, that hatred for children is more obvious and undeniable every day. Everything you and I have held true about humanity, gender, marriage, and the relationship between a man and a woman, food, money, scarcity, work, all of that is being challenged now. In short, observable, verifiable truth is being questioned. I'm old enough to remember that it used to be faith that was questioned. The, the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen, that was what was being challenged. And now we live in a culture where what's being challenged is observable, verifiable, scientifically proven reality that is no longer true. And I put true in quotes. The, the uh, um, current culture is you dare not believe your lying eyes or that you can be called all kinds of names. Isaiah 5 describes it this way in verse 20 um, in a series of woes, one of which deals with inflation and money, but that's next week's session. But in Isaiah 5.20, it says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Does that describe our culture? Romans 1 describes our culture. They exchange the truth of God for a what? A lie. This is contrasted with the God of truth. Psalm 30, uh, 31 verse 5 says, Into your hand, talking to God, into your hand I commit my spirit. You have ransomed me, O Lord, the God of truth. I hate those who regard vain idols, but I trust the Lord because he's truth. Folks, now is the time to double down on teaching the fear of God, the wisdom of God, and obedience to God. We have to wade into the state of the world you are preparing your children for. You're parenting in a stark clarity like this country has never seen, at least in my lifetime. The difference between the saints and the ain'ts is pretty clear, isn't it? There is no more cultural Christianity. You can no longer rely on the positive reinforcement or positive peer pressure from other families, from education, from media, politicians, entertainment, business leaders, it's not there. It no longer exists uninterrupted. And by the way, your role is to interrupt what I'm discussing. But uninterrupted, your children are targeted. And they're targeted to be programmed to believe and even embrace some astounding truth. Again, the truth in quotes. 
The fervor that's used to influence your children is on a level that historically was reserved for religious beliefs. The secular fervor is in the form of intimidation, pressure, legalism, emotional persuasion, and assumptions based on completely false premises. And I think I'm probably preaching to the choir on this. I don't think I'm breaking any news to you. These false premises and these false truths, if you will, might be exposed later, but by then it's too late. Nobody wants to hear it. They've been adopted. Why? Because this truth is completely untethered from reality, physical reality, experiential reality, or biblical facts. You may not be aware of this new language or this new truth in great detail, but you cannot, as parents, ignore it. Your children are learning perspectives and terminology that I suspect were not part of your vocabulary and your terminology when you were growing up. Gender identity. At a very young age, that is a term that your children are being confronted with, that boys can be girls and even have babies. Girls can become boys. In fact, your children wouldn't know this necessarily, but you do. A candidate for the highest court of the land, a woman, actually testified that there's no way to define a woman, and she was confirmed. A few weeks later, a Berkeley law professor in congressional testimony called a U.S. senator transphobic because he dared to challenge the fact that men can have babies. She called that position violence. These are our supposed intellectual elites. These are our betters. These are the people who are influencing the world that your children are growing up in. And all of this nonsense is verifiably, scientifically, and objectively false. Changing genders is impossible. That's not a political statement. I'm going to show you that from Scripture. A woman is definable, and men cannot have babies. When a baby is born, there's some uncertainty in the delivery room. I was there for three of them, at least. There's some uncertainty. Is the baby healthy? Um, does, is she sick? Is, you know, can they see? Are there 10? Remember counting? Are there 10 fingers and 10 toes? The one thing that is not uncertain in the delivery room, regardless of what a pediatrician will jump in and say, is the gender of that baby. There is no uncertainty. In humans, each cell normally contains 23 pairs of chromosomes for a total of 46. 22 of these pairs are called autosomes, And they look exactly the same in both men and women, males and females. The 23rd pair, the sex chromosome, differs between males and females. Hard stop. They are different. Females have two copies of the X chromosome, while males have one X and one Y chromosome. This is unchallenged scientific reality. I'm an accountant. I had to reread all of that to remember that. This is not up for question. It's not up for debate. And yet, doctors, scientists, join in on the fantasy world of gender change, mostly out of fear for their livelihood at this point. They lack integrity. 
LGBTQ and other labels for a myriad, describing a myriad of sexual perversions that your children are hearing at an age that is, frankly, unbelievable. Sexual activity is determined by genetics now, not by choice. That's completely contrary to the Word of God. But if, if it's just genetics, then there's no basis to criticize that behavior or try to correct it. In fact, that kind of behavior has been elevated to a protected civil right. What the Bible considers base, immoral debauchery has been normalized now and even honored in this country. Your children are being told, trained to believe that there's no answer to the question, what is a human? That's where we're at now. This is a natural extension of decades of teaching evolution, animal rights, and the course of the abortion industry. Science and education has reverted to the dark ages, or it's heading there very quickly. Truth and facts are defined by agenda, not data. Inconvenient data and evidence, like chromosomes, is suppressed and hidden. Useful facts are created by manipulating statistics and data so that they have a basis for rejecting provable science. And society overwhelmingly right now asks for science to keep lying to them. They love the lies. They will fight for the lies to continue. That is going on in Los Angeles right now. Your children are being taught a, con a completely different version of science than you and I grew up learning. By the way, children are being told in schools that if they believe God created the heavens and the earth, they should not pursue a science as a career. Science is politics. And that's what marked the Dark Ages. There is a purging of anybody in science who believes that God created the heavens and the earth. Have you heard of transhumanism? Transhumanism is defined as hu human in most, someone who's human in most respects that has powers and abilities beyond standard humans. If you have a son in first grade, he'll probably call them superpowers. That's where we're at in our culture. That's being normalized. Transhumanism is based on the premise that the human species in its current form does not represent the end of our development, but rather a comparative early phase. Transhumanism, and I'm quoting here from a source, is the intellectual and cultural movement that affirms the possibility and desirability of fundamentally improving the human condition. This improvement will come through applied reason and technology to eliminate aging and to greatly enhance human intellectual, physical, and psychological capabilities capabilities. Transhumanism is an extension of the religion of evolution. Creation wasn't an event. Creation is a process. This all interacts with artificial intelligence and machine learning, and the eventual conclusion will be that machines are equal to or superior to humans, and that at its most basic level, man can improve on the rudimentary and inadequate version of man that we see today that evolved from an ape. Of course, you and I understand this is man's attempt to improve on God's creation. Romans 1.25 describes it this way, they exchanged the truth of God for falsehood and worshipped and served the creature 
rather than the Creator. Your children are going to be learning about transhumanism. It probably won't be called transhumanism. This is a philosophy, a new religion. Then there's the metaverse. This is so prevalent and profitable that a company that you're familiar with, uh, fake, excuse me, Facebook, <laughs> changed their name to Meta. They're taking the covers off. They are going full fake. What is the metaverse? Again, I'm going to quote a definition in a technology uh, publication that said this. The metaverse is the virtual or digital world where people gather to work, play, and hang out. Why can't people gather physically to work, play, and hang out? Because we're in a world of pretend. The metaverse is called the next iteration of the Internet. It's pretend. It's escape from reality. It's a pretend world. You assume a pretend identity and enjoy pretend relationships happening in pretend places. You can actually buy pretend assets with pretend money in the metaverse. Now the geniuses in our culture have found a way to pay actual real money for pretend assets. It's called NFTs. You can take your hard-earned money and buy beachfront property in Malibu in the metaverse. It costs a lot of money. Do you see the pattern in all of this? The first pattern I want to notice is fake. Pretend. Or people... Um, Boys can be girls, girls can be boys, men can have babies, babies are not humans, transgenders uh, dressing up to be something uh, they're not to convey their particular form of debauchery, transhumanist powers, and metaverses alternative reality. It's all pretend. It's all artificial. The second part of that pattern is suppressing truth. For pretend to be dominant... You must suppress truth. Romans 1 describes it this way. Professing to be wise, they became what? Fools. It used to be that fantasy and pretend was the domain of little boys and girls playing together. They were developing their imagination. That was a rite of passage as a child. And adulthood was marked by a departure from pretend to the real world. Reality. Those who were stuck in that pretend stage as adults were diagnosed, <laughs> treated, and to the extent they harmed others, they were prosecuted and isolated. Some of you may not be old enough to remember that. This country historically fully adopted the biblical principle from 1 Corinthians thirteen eleven, that says, When I was a child, I used to speak as a child, think like a child, reason like a child, when I became a man, I did away with childish things. Translation, I used to pretend, and now I don't. That is no longer the case. We've normalized playing pretend as adults. And your child will be forced on some level to accept this. To accept the pretend status of others. You know this is true because some of you in your workplace have been required to do this. For example, kids in school now are being coerced to use the preferred pronouns of others, especially teachers, 
And they will someday in their jobs be fired and isolated if they don't do that. It's already happening. I think we all struggle in these foolish days with applying the wisdom of Proverbs 26, 4, that says, Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you will be like him. Answer a fool as his folly deserves, that he not be wise in his own eyes. Even talking about some of this nonsense seems to give it credibility. But I think we have to talk about it. And this morning I want to have Scripture answer the foolishness as that folly deserves. Mom and Dad, you need not adopt the language of gender identity, moral perversion, transhumanism, and all the rest of it, but ignoring it allows your children to learn a language that you don't know. And to arm your children against this stuff, you need to know what's being taught and, in some sense, beat them to it. Prepare them before they get there if you can. Be thinking several moves ahead. And before I go on, I I want to make note of something. I think some of you think about parenting in this environment maybe just in the last 10, 15 minutes, and you get discouraged, fearful. You want to take your family and hide away. What it was already a formidable task has just gotten a lot more complicated. I want to encourage you with a few things before we move on in that regard. Isaiah 59 is an apt description of our culture, of our country right now. I'm going to jump in in verse 12. Our transgressions are multiplied before you, talking to God, and our sins testify against us, for our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities. Transgressing and denying the Lord, turning away from God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving in and uttering from the heart lying words. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away, for truth has stumbled in the streets and uprightness cannot enter. Yes, truth is lacking and he who turns aside from evil makes himself a prey. Now the Lord saw... And it was displeasing in his sight that there was no justice. Do you hear our culture, our country, in Isaiah 59? Not to deepen the darkness here, but I do want to make note of two things in those verses. One, it says, he who turns aside from evil makes himself a prey. If you train your child to turn aside from evil, they will become what? Prey. Are you up for that? You should be. In your heart, what is your reaction to that? Your reaction should be to be strong and courageous. It also says in verse 15 of Isaiah 59, Now the Lord saw. He doesn't miss any of this. He knows all of this. You need to take heart. There's some good news. For there's nothing new about anything we're looking at and enduring and experiencing today. Isaiah 59 was written 900 years ago. Parents for hundreds of years have dealt with a culture like ours and even worse. Nothing about the moral and spiritual state of this world has changed. And I say that to encourage you. We tend to think 
we're, there are things going on here that have never been seen before. How do I parent in this environment? Well, Jesus called Satan the ruler of this world, as he has been since Genesis 3. 2 Corinthians 4 calls Satan the God of this world. In John 8, verse 44, Christ describes Satan. Listen to this. You are of your father, the devil. He was talking to people who did not, um, they had rejected Christ. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So we know that long before we got here, Satan is the god of this world. He is the ruler of this world, and he is a murderer, and he is a liar. Does it get, I mean, is that clear enough? That's the world we live in. Satan has been, and he is, the ruler of the world. He traffics in death and murder. So what we are seeing is literally demonic, and it's nothing new. So while the control of the fallen world has not changed, we do need to note that something in this country certainly has, right? Why is the moral collapse of this country so obvious, sudden, and accelerated? Maybe that's just my observation. Maybe you're not seeing that. I think you do. I think it's because you and I are alive and we're in the front row observing the rapid descent described in Romans 1 as an expression of the wrath and the judgment of God. God appears to be quickly giving this country over to its sin. The restraints on Satan are being removed. God is quickly giving this country over to, and I'm reading from Romans 1, the lusts of their hearts to impurity, degrading passions, depraved minds, and to giving hearty approval to unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, envy, murder, strife, deceit, there's more, malice, gossip, slander, hating God, insolence, arrogance, boasting, inventing of evil, and disobedience to parents. This is Romans 1 truth. And it is the best explanation of a dramatic cultural shift that is in motion in this country. None of this is a surprise to our Creator and our Savior. Moms and dads, you've been given the task to prepare the next generation, your children, to be salt and light in a dark world. That hasn't changed. It's just for us, it's a little darker world. We've been given everything pertaining to life and godliness through true knowledge of Him who has called us by His own glory and excellence. That's 2 Peter 1.4. In your darkest days of feeling inadequate as a parent, remember that verse. You've been given everything. This is also an opportunity for the gospel. John 8.12 says, I am the light of the world. This is Jesus talking. I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Your mission field is in your house first. You must show your children the light of the world. 
you must pray and call them to that light. And then should God graciously save them, Matthew 5 says, Christ said to us, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men. How? goes on to say, in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. You let your light shine, your children's light shines by how they act. How they function in a world that is dark. Moms and dads, you must use your place of position, your place of influence to implant the Word of God, truth, into the hearts of your children. You, your children, and your grandchildren can be the light in a dark world. You must parent as if you believe that the Bible is the Word of God. Your life and your words in front of your children should reflect the truth of God's Word. The Word of God will bring clarity and help. You must teach it. So if you would, turn to Genesis 1. All of that was introduction. Genesis 1 is an amazing chapter in the Bible. It's the chapter describing the creation of the world and everything in it. It describes in that narrative the order of creation, the design of creation, and some of God's purposes in creation. There is social order, natural order, and spiritual order described in Genesis. And all of it was called very good by God, the Creator. Genesis 1 is the owner's manual. We've been handed this world. We've been put it on this earth. What do we do with it? Genesis 1 is the owner's manual. It's the instruction manual. And virtually every tenant of modern-day conventional wisdom, or I'll call it the tenets of secular religion, are completely destroyed by one passage in Genesis chapter 1. Before we look at it, let's review the basic questions your children will and must confront when they go to school, depending on where they go to school, when they're in the neighborhood, when they're in other people's homes, or someday when they leave your home and go to college and take a job. What are the questions they must confront that you need to prepare them for? And then I want to walk you through Genesis and show you how in seven verses they're all answered. Questions. Did God really create the world? Are we the product of a creative moment or a creative process? Does that matter? Are we still developing and evolving? What is a human? Why are we here? What is the purpose and meaning of your life? And by the way, that question, what is a human, now that the culture has um, put out there that you can't answer what, the question of what is a woman... The next step is, well, let's try this one. What is a human? 
And the intellectual elites of of our day will tell you, you cannot define that. Why were animals created? Do they have rights? Are they like humans? Some of you might be saying, really, animals? We'll get there. It's important. Is gender optional? Can I change it as often as I want? Can a man be a woman? Can a woman be a man? Are there 57 genders? What is marriage? Is marriage defined by Congress? What is a baby? When does life begin? Is an unborn child a fetus? Just a clump of cells? So many of us have adopted the language of our culture. We call a baby in the womb a fetus, and it's just so much easier to accept. I'm not saying us. But it's so much easier for the world to talk about killing a clump of cells or a fetus than it is to say we are killing a baby. Is that a baby in the womb? Is that a human? Are children necessary? Why have children? What about work? Is the goal of life really to be so successful that I no longer need to work? Is work good? Why is there always work to do? Some of you moms want to know that. (laughs) Why can't we just support guaranteed minimum income? It's the newest thing. It's coming. Where the government issues all of you a check every month. Why not just do that and let the government support us and live a life of leisure? Food. The most basic resources, food and water. Your children, if they are in the public school system, are currently being taught almost at every age that growing food is ruining and destroying the planet, that we are overusing the resources of the world. You should not have children. You should not have large families because that is selfish. You heard that since 2020 on other things? Are we running out of food? Should we limit population growth so that we don't run out of food? These are all questions that are answered, like I said, in seven verses of Genesis. We're going to go through Genesis and answer these questions, and there's hundreds of verses and passages in the Bible addressing all of these questions. I don't have seven or eight hours with you today. I have another 25 minutes or so. So we're going to go through the most concise, beautiful description that answers these questions. And obviously, we're going through this. I know, I assume, that you already know most, if not everything, I'm telling you here today. The goal is to equip you to sit down with your children and not tell them just what to think, but why. Why? What is unique about Genesis is that we have a world order established by the Creator before sin entered the world. By the way, sin changed none of it. None of the purposes, none of the order. The perfect world was functioning exactly as the Creator designed, described in a beautiful simplicity in the conciseness of text. And so Genesis 1 answers, first of all, a very big question. And that question is, did God create the world? Genesis 1.1. Profound verse. In the beginning, 
God created the heavens and the earth. You all know that verse. We need to think about this for a minute. This is the foundation. This is the initial test. This is the gateway, moms and dads, that you need to examine yourself. It's the test of whether you believe the Bible is the Word of God. It is not a scientific debate in your home. It can be. It probably will be and probably should be. But the gateway conversation in your home is, is Genesis 1-1, the Word of God. If you don't believe it is, your children won't believe it is. If you don't teach that this is the Word of God, then Genesis 1-1 has little to no meaning, and your children, when they go to science class, will be tossed around like the wind. The starting point in your home should be a spiritual discussion, not a scientific discussion. It's a test of whether you actually accept the veracity and the authority of God's Word. That's why I said earlier, you need to parent like you believe the Bible is God's Word. If you do that in other areas, this will be obvious. This statement is the basis for everything else. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Down in verse 4, just to uh, um, recount this, Genesis 2. Just a sec. Yep. Sorry, Genesis 2, verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. This is a summary statement of what's going on in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. It's simple, basic, profound. God made the world. The implications of this truth are profound. And it starts with, if God made the world, He makes the rules. Logical, reasonable, obvious. Parents, you need to remember this, teach this, talk about this. Make this the frame and filter through which you view the world with your children. And your home, just so you know, will be radically different than the rest of the world just on this point. And you and your children might become prey. But if you have the conviction that this is God's Word, then you must teach it. You must believe and teach a big God, holy, omniscient, powerful, controlling, patient, loving, our Creator, the rule maker. A big God puts man in proper perspective. A big God puts your son in proper perspective. A big God puts your daughter in proper perspective. It's hard to believe the secular religion of today that man is in control when I have been taught from being a very young boy that God is in control. You teach the fear of God. That's what we're talking about here. You teach the fear of God. It's the beginning of wisdom. And the fear of God and the truth that God created the world is the antidote to the foolishness of this day and age. 
In Genesis chapter 1, verses 9 through 25, describe the creation of the heavens and the earth. Everything from space to land to under the seas and everything encompassed by that. Starting in verse 26 is the creation of man, and that's where I'd like to go next. So starting in verse 26, it's the creation of humans and how man fits into God's creation. So humans are created, and then there is a description on where, does, where do you and I fit in this grand creative process. And in the next six verses... That's what we get. And I have an idea or a suggestion, by the way. I'm skipping over verses 9 through 25. My recommendation, moms and dads, is at the right age, so probably not nine months old, although I am not opposed to that, I highly recommend that your family hears you read Genesis chapter 1 out loud. It is beautiful. It is magnificent. It is the description of a large, big, omniscient, powerful, creative God. Don't miss it. I highly recommend you read the entire chapter to your family and more than once. But let's start in verse 26. God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image and the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth and every tree which has fruit yielding seed. It shall be food for you. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the sky, and to everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given you every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was what? It was okay. It worked for now. Is that what it says? It was very good. And all God's people said amen, right? It's from this passage that you and I as parents can draw profound truth to provide a biblical frame and lens for our children as they view the issues of the day around them. So let's walk through this and answer the big questions. I'm going to pose the questions that we've already referenced and see how the passage answers them. By the way, Genesis 1 is so stark and clear, it will create a dilemma. What's true? Is the Bible true? Or is what my teacher's telling me true? Is the Bible true? Or is what Uncle Joe's telling me true? Is the Bible true? Or is it what all my friends believe? This is a good dilemma. You want this dilemma. You want this this dilemma to happen in your home so that you can inform that dilemma. Don't be afraid of dilemmas. First question, what is a human? What is a human? 
Can you define that? Have you ever asked your children, what is a human? Probably not. You might want to do that. What is a human? The great thing I can tell you is that the Bible defines it, and it's a really simple, profound, clear definition, and it's in verse 26. A human is life created in the image of God. It's not life. It's life created in the image of God. Your dog has life. Your dog was not created in the image of God. Your dog is not a human. You see the, di- the distinction? This is very profound. Let us make man. That means we're created. A human being is a created life. That should evoke, by the way, humility in knowing we answer to a creator. Every created being answers to its creator. Let's talk about the image of God. I'm going to cover in about three minutes here what could be a couple hours. But a life form created in the image of God has a spirit, has language, communication. That life has initiative, intellect, personality. Humans are capable of forgiveness, mercy, redemption. There is no other life form like that. Human beings are capable of sin. Human beings are able to make moral choices. Human beings are also the object of God's love, His attention, and His will. The object of God's divine purpose in 1 Timothy 1.15 is that Christ Jesus came into the world to save what? Sinners, human beings. God sent Christ to save humans. No other part of his creation will be redeemed. In fact, it will all burn. Humans are special. In Genesis 9-6, after the flood, God is explaining the significance, the real meaning of the rainbow. Even that's been um, polluted in our culture. But Genesis 9 gives the real description of the purpose and the reason for the rainbow after the flood. And in that description, God says, Whoever sheds human blood by man, his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he made mankind. This is distinguishing, once again, not just what a human being is, but the inherent value, the immense value of a human being. And that high value of a human being of human life destroys any argument that abortion is okay. It is indeed murder. I'll read again Genesis 9-6. Whoever sheds human blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made mankind. Over in Genesis 2, verse 7, it says, Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. This is simply an expansion of the truth that's in Genesis 1. This is simple, it's basic, it's profound. God made your son. God created your daughter. He makes the rules by which your son, your daughter, you, me, must live.
That is true before birth, at birth, and after birth. It's true before death, during death, and after death. His creation was the result of His purposes, and His purposes preceded us, and His purposes supersede our purposes. It's laughable foolishness to think that we, the created, can change what God, the Creator, has done. It's remarkable that human pride would result in us thinking we can or wanting to. So what is a human? It's answered in verse 26, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. A human being is life created in the image of God. Next question. What is an animal? And I know you all came in this morning with the burning question this morning, what is an animal, didn't you? You might think that's um, a silly question. I might have too. But in studying Genesis 26 to 31, it became very obvious that God thinks this is a very important question. Enough to be answered and resolved at the beginning by God. It is an important question. Your children will be taught that human beings are no better or different than the animals. Animals are people too. Have you heard that? Or at least they're like people. Think about the cartoons, the TV shows, the movies your children watch where animals talk. They have personality and they make moral choices. It's not hard to think that they can adopt the perspective then that animals are like humans and they have similar rights. You might not be aware of this, but most legal bar associations, including the American Bar Association, this is the collection of attorneys, the legal force of this country, almost all of them now have animal law sections. Your children are also going to be told that it's immoral to eat meat or that to eat meat from animals that are mistreated is immoral. It's a massive industry right now um, where they are accommodating people who believe they can only eat eggs from chickens who aren't kept in chicken coops. Free-range chickens. You heard of that? This is only the beginning. There's more coming on all of this. Your children are going to be taught this. What does the Bible say about it? Genesis 1.26. This is very important. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and every other creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Do you see that? There is a hierarchy of creation. And this is important to note, to understand that humans are not like animals and animals are not like humans. It helps us understand what is a human. And we'll see in a minute, it also tells us what our role is on the earth. Animals were not created in the image and likeness of God. They have no spirit, language, initiative, Intellect, some of you have dogs that prove that. Some of you have dogs that make you think, no, they do have intellect. They don't have personality like human beings. They don't make moral choices. There are no God-given animal rights. That is entirely a creation of a sinful and rebellious creation. 
Here's the hard truth for some of you, especially the kids that are here today. Animals are food. That's not me. It's not a political statement. I just read that to you from Genesis chapter 1. They are beasts of burden. They are clothing, and man is to rule over them. They were put on this earth for us. Those are the instructions from their creator. The animal, animal rights movement is easy to laugh at, at least easy for me to laugh at, but the goals and the philosophy of the movement are a direct affront to God's stated design. It's also something that will be pushed into your child's thinking. By the way, before we leave animals, I think I want to say it's obviously we're not to intentionally mistreat or needlessly injure animals or any other part of God's creation, actually. It says in Proverbs 12, a righteous man has regards for the life of his animal. All of God's creation is to be appreciated and respected as we subdue it and rule over it. What about gender? What about gender? Let's keep reading in Genesis 1, verse 27. God created man in his own image. There it is again, in the image of God. God created him, male and female, he created them. We don't have to spend a lot of time on this. If you have entered Genesis at chapter 1, verse 1, and established in your thinking and in your home that this is the Word of God, then you have everything you need to know right here. Male, female. Two genders, period. Hard stop. Chosen by God, not optional. It cannot be changed, and men cannot have babies. You know that's true. Again, that is not a political statement. That is God's description. The God of the universe. Gender is the choice and the, and the design of God according to his perfect will and his purposes. Your child should know that. Your son is not your son by mistake or by random choice. God individually, in his love and according to his purposes, gave you your son. Same for your daughter. Your child will be told they have the power and the option to make a choice about their gender. It is amazing to an old guy like me to see how openly this is being pushed in elementary school. It starts early, and it will be often. They will be convinced they have the power or they have the option. And they're so powerful, they can change it as many times as they want. The ultimate rebellion is to deny the prerogatives of God and assume the ability to change His perfect plan. It is utter foolishness, and it's the ultimate expression of human pride. That is the issue if you know somebody who is changing their gender, number one, they're not changing their gender, and they are expressing in the most visible, base way they can that they know better than God. 
teach the simple truth that they are to submit to their Creator. His purposes and His designs are unchanging, they're forever, and they're utterly dependable. It's God's truth. The fact that it is God's truth should matter to you and to your children. What about marriage and family? Our culture says marriage is optional and not optimal anymore. Within family, the purpose of marriage is personal pleasure. And it doesn't really matter who gets married to each other as long as they love each other, right? Children are optional, but definitely not optimal. In fact, the world is overpopulated and it's immoral to have more children. I read this morning, I I tied a rope around my waist, tied it to a tree, and jumped into social media. (laughs) I don't do that very often. I did that just curious this morning on some of this. And it didn't take me more than five minutes to see a prominent politician last night on an interview show make that exact statement. It's immoral to have children because the world is overpopulated and the future looks dark. Verse 28 blows all of this away. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He blessed them. That's happiness, contentment, fulfillment, peace, God's peace for his creation. How do you do that? In this context, it is really simple. Have babies. I know you did. That's why you're here. Have more babies. Genesis 9, 6, that same verse I read to you earlier is followed by another verse. Let me just start in verse 6. Whoever sheds human blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made mankind. Verse 7, as for you, be fruitful and multiply, populate the earth abundantly. Do you see that? Abundantly and multiply in it. Let me say it again. Have babies. Have lots of babies. That's God's design. And the God-ordained context for for children is marriage. In Genesis chapter 2, he he establishes the design of man and woman. He talks about Adam and Eve. At the end of all of it, Genesis 2.24, For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife. Translation, woman. Shall be joined to a woman, and they shall become one flesh. For what reason? You ever wondered? You hear this at weddings. For this reason. What reason? Well, verses 18 and 23 provide all of that, and we won't develop all of that this morning, but a man and woman are brought together, and the order of the family is established in verses 18 to 23. For that reason, a man and a woman come together. Why do people get married? It's not because they love each other. That's part of it. But God's purpose for a man and a woman coming together is to glorify God And to have babies. Sounds so basic. But that was God's design. Multiply, fill the earth abundantly. Satan's culture is death. We already saw that. Murder and death. And lies. The constant drumbeat of overpopulation is a lie from the pit of hell. Do you think God didn't know What he was saying when he said, multiply and fill the earth abundantly, and then he said again, multiply. 
God knows what he was, God knew what he was doing. He knows what he's doing. It is a sign of a godless, I would even say, demonic culture that suppresses the bearing of children. Some of you are aware of China's one-child policy codified the defiance of God. And it was completely consistent. You can only have one child. It's completely consistent with other policies in that same government resulting in the murder of millions of people in communist China. God is the ruler of the of this earth and he's a murderer and he's a liar and so when we see that going on around us it should not deter us at all from god's definition of marriage and family and his design for marriage and family you know who your children marry is optional i know it's a scary question when they marry is optional That your children will marry should be assumed in your parenting. And that should inform your parenting. Even if they have the gift of singleness and they don't marry, you have not wasted your time. Those with the gift of singleness still support and affirm the place of the family because it's God's design. What about work? What about work? In our culture, work is optional. It's a burden. It's unnecessary. Or maybe necessary, but you want to get that out of your life as quickly as possible. Well, verse 28 repeats a phrase that is said in verse 26. Let me read uh, verse 28 again. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds. There's two verbs there. Subdue and rule. You see that? That's work. You have work to do. And by the way, the implications of having children is you're going to do what? I thought there'd be a big response to that question. You all don't look tired either. Maybe you're not doing it. (laughs) Parents work, don't you? That is an implication of parenting. If you listen to all the parenting stuff we do here at Grace Church, you read your Bible, you see that as a parent, you have a lot of work to do. That's implied. That's part of God's perfect design. But subduing the earth and ruling over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth is work. That's God's divine purpose. It's a a gift from God. It's His command. In Genesis 2 talking about the creation of Adam. It says this in verse 5, The shrub of the field was not yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to work, to cultivate the ground. Adam's created. Down in verse 15, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to enjoy it. Is that what it says? Because he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it, to cultivate it, to keep it. That is ruling and subduing. That description in Genesis 2 is an expansion of what it meant in Genesis chapter 1 when the command was given to subdue and rule. Everything Adam was needed, Adam needed was provided, including work to do. Work is not 
the curse. Work was in God's design on this earth before sin entered the world. We know from Genesis and the rest of the Bible, including the New Testament, that work is a gift from God. It is a blessing. It is a form of worship. It is a fact of life. And yes, it's hard, but it has a purpose. Remember that when you get on the 4-0 cry in the morning. (laughs) Work is good. If you really want to understand how much we should appreciate work, talk to someone who cannot work. There are some in this room this morning who would give anything to be able to work. Why is that? Because that's God's design. After the curse, after sin enters the garden in Genesis 3.17, God says to Adam, Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil, sweat, work will you eat of it all the days of your life. So really, is our goal in life to get to the life of leisure, to get to a place where we don't have to work anymore? Maybe for some, but not everybody. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. That is life on this earth. Ecclesiastes 2 expands the role, and the difficulty of work, all by design. Work is not the curse. It is the connection between if you don't work, you don't what? Eat. That's the curse. Enjoy your work. Thank God for your work. Understand that that was, by God's design, in the garden, before sin entered the world, his perfect design. It was his grace to us. One more area to talk about, and then we're done. Food, water, scarcity, famine. Maybe another thing that you weren't walking in here thinking about this morning. But I'm telling you, your children are being targeted. That they are being taught and told through entertainment, through their education, that we're running out of food and energy and water. Your children are being shamed into a perspective that it's unloving or immoral to be a consumer of food. If you don't believe me, and I understand why you might not, tie a rope around your waist, tie it to a tree, and jump into social media for about five, ten minutes. It is everywhere. We're harming the environment by eating food. Fear Fear, it's the coin of the realm. Create a fearful people. The Green New Deal is not just in this country, around the world. It's instrumental in the decision to shut down farmland. Farming harms the environment, don't you know? The new virtue signaling, accommodating this fear and saving the planet is eating synthetic food. Some of you probably eat synthetic food. I'm not saying that's a sin, but I'm just telling you that is where we're going. Synthetic food is justified by the fear of population outgrowing the ability to grow sufficient natural food. And again, it's all fake news. It's all false. We know this from Genesis 1. If you look in Genesis 1 and verse 29... 
God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the earth. That implies ownership. Who who owns the plants? God. He's given them to us. Yielding seed, what does that mean? That those plants are going to be reproducing, self-reproducing. All over the surface of the earth and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, and it shall be food for you. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the sky and to everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. Where does food come from? Don't say the grocery store to your kids. It comes from God. Read Genesis 1. If you read the part of Genesis 1 that I skipped over, you will now understand why it talks so much about seeds and reproducing. Because in verse 29 and 30, what God is telling us through Moses is, I have given you an endless supply of food. Don't mess it up. I have given you. That speaks to the grace of a loving God. Whether we acknowledge it or appreciate it, there it is. It's a replenishing, renewing supply. That's why it keeps referencing seeds. So you might ask, why is there scarcity and famine? And by the way, your children might know a significant period in this world of scarcity and famine. Everything's pointing to it. Does that contradict Genesis 1? No, scarcity of food is caused by a fallen world. It can be caused by disease or disaster. It's mostly caused generally in history by politics. In, in this woke world, the perspective of don't eat animals, it's not a loving thing to do. Um, don't eat food raised on farms. You see, we should, and we ultimately will, Enjoy the food supply that God gave us. It may take a good famine to remind everybody that God produces the food. He has given us what we need, and we've messed it up. You know, the destruction of farming has been underway for decades here in California. If you've ever driven up the 99 and the 5, you've seen it. Most of those farmers have gone to other countries. And now it's happening in Europe. You're watching the news at all. I know they're trying to suppress this. Most of Europe is locked down now because of protests. There is potential, and this isn't because of a war in Ukraine, by the way. The environmentalists are in full offense to save the planet. The planet takes priority over people. It is worshiping the the creature over the creator. It is completely ignoring Genesis chapter 1, verses 29 and 30. That God created this world. He knew exactly what he was doing. He told us to multiply and fill the earth, have babies, and he was providing the resources to feed and water that world. I often get asked about um, parenting books, and I don't recommend very many because I think the Bible is an outstanding parenting book. But there's one book that was recommended by Pastor John. I bought it, I read it, and I'm in it. I'm going through it the third time now. 
And it's not really a parenting book, and it may not be for you, but it's called Disease, Scarcity, and Famine, A Reformation Perspective on God and Plagues. It is three sermons that were preached in about 1570. It is outstanding history for you to present maybe to your children to give them perspective on today's world from a biblical standpoint. In other words, this isn't just experiential from the 1570s. It is somebody taking Scripture, talking about exactly what I was just talking about, disease, scarcity, and famine, and taking current events, meaning from the 1500s, and looking at them through the lens of Scripture. We serve a good God. We serve a great God. We serve a generous God who put us on this earth. He made us in the image of God. Your children are special. And not for the reasons the world tells them they're special. They're special because the God of the universe chose that they were a son or a daughter, and he created them in his image. And he defined their role and purpose at the beginning of time. And he compared it and contrasted it in Genesis with the animals. He defined marriage and he told creation to enjoy marriage, that it was an institution designed by God, a relationship exclusively between one man and one woman for the purpose of glorifying God through bearing children, should God give you children, and raising them to glorify God and to enjoy his creation. And he gave us work to do. That work is what we are to do, and he promised sufficient food and water. A perfect creation. And in verse 31, we close with, God saw that all he had made, and behold, it was what? Very good. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you believe that, the rest of Genesis 1 is the very word of God. Even if you don't believe that, let me be clear. But if you do believe Genesis 1-1, you believe it is the word of God, you must understand Genesis 1. And I hope we've done that today. And my, my prayer is that you would teach your children that. Here's some things to think about as we walk out of here. You've heard this before, if you've listened to me ever before. Teach the fear of God. The humility of the fear of God, the submission of the fear of God, thankfulness. Teach your children to be grateful to their creator. The kindness of the fear of God. You know, some of what even I've said this morning may have sounded harsh, judgmental. It is. But when interacting with family and friends, teachers, people at work, there should be a kindness that reflects fear of God when you talk about these things. Believe the Bible. Trust it. Parent like you believe it. Teach the fear of God. Second, teach the wisdom of God. That is the Word of God. Genesis 1. Teach your children to believe their lying eyes. Informed by the Word of God. You need to teach them and train them so that their eyes can discern between good and evil. 
and then teach obedience to the commandments and judgments of God, it is the path to blessing, peace, and faith in Jesus Christ. And then you pray that God would save them. And to close, can I do that for you? Let's pray. Lord, I do pray for the children represented in this room, that you would reach down and touch their hearts. Lord, that you would save them. Every person in this room recognizes they cannot save their children, but you can. Lord, we look at your creation, we look at the process and the design of this earth, the answers to the questions through that creation that you've given us just in the first chapter of the Bible. Lord, we're grateful for this world. We're grateful for family. We're grateful for children. Lord, I pray for the parents in this room that they would faithfully teach the fear of God, the wisdom of God, the obedience to God. And as it says in 2 Timothy 3.15, would that lead to faith in Jesus Christ for each of their children? Lord, may we go from here committed to within our families being salt and light in a dark world, not to our praise and glory, but entirely to yours, that the light might be seen in our culture, that people might come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And we pray this in your name. Amen.